Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, episode 48. This week, we're going to talk sleep. But even more importantly, sleep optimization strategies, especially for athletes. Uh, Most of our listeners with the Chasing Tomorrow podcast are endurance athletes, runners, people really interested in this. And I can't imagine a different or a better topic to talk about when it comes to finding that extra, not an inch, but an extra foot uh, in your performance than sleep. I know personally, I'm not getting enough sleep. I don't think Joe is getting enough sleep. But I do think that our guest, Dr. Amy Bender, may be getting enough sleep or not, but we'll get around to that. So Dr. Amy Bender is the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebro Medical. She received her PhD in experimental psychology from Washington State University specializing in EEG. Now get this, Amy uh, helped develop the only validated sleep screening tool for athletes and has implemented sleep optimization strategies for numerous Canadian Olympic teams and professional teams. In 2018, also, Amy decided to slum a little bit and work with this dirtbag runner (laughs) as I attempted to run across Canada in record time. And uh, it was amazing. I learned so much about what I needed to do uh, and what I wasn't doing. And my performance was increased exponential. So this conversation, pay attention people and send it to your friends because it is timely and it is so rewarding. Amy was a, Amy was a former college basketball player, Ironman athlete, and is now tackling her most challenging endurance endeavor to date. She's keeping up with her three little kids. Welcome <laughs> to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm uh... I'm a little nervous here, Dave, because I'm your sleep coach and you're not getting right. enough sleep. This isn't good. This is this is damaging my reputation. I don't know, Amy. I think that there's there's listening to Amy and then there's what's on Netflix right now. And there's a couple of really good shows, but I know you don't <laughs> want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, um, no, don't don't do the auto autoplay Netflix. That's not right. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, Amy, thanks for getting on. You know, and I think that there's lots of us who are you fall into that trap, but generally in life where we know what we're supposed to do and then we don't really do it. You know, our eating habits, we probably all know how to eat better. We all know we should sleep more. You know, we should be kinder and gentler to everyone around us. And uh, we sadly need constant reminders uh, to live that life that, that sort of lets us play into the potential that we have. You know, because we sort of all have this immense amount of potential you know Dave's sort of shown that over his lifetime of running and and some of us don't even know what that potential is but you know maybe we we start a little bit earlier in the story because it's like a little bit of like you know how does someone get into the sleep business it seems like you know while it's somewhat of an epidemic I know at least in the United States there's like almost 5,000 sleep centers you know it's a third of the population doesn't have good sleep uh you know, it is a massive industry. So this most basic need, we're not doing the best we could at it. So tell us your journey. How did you get there? Because, you know, we all sleep, but we don't all become sleep doctors. So how did it happen for you? I uh, actually started off by going to my aunt's sleep lab in Portland, Oregon. And I was kind of at a crossroads. I was looking for something different went to her sleep lab. She hooked up a patient with electrodes, you know, electrodes looking at brainwave activity, eye movements, muscle activity, uh, respiratory, and all the channels that you need to diagnose the sleep disorder, basically. And it was fascinating. I saw how those signals were translated on the screen and how she staged the various stages of sleep. Um, so I basically called up every sleep lab in my area and tried to volunteer. So I started off volunteering, um, you know, volunteered for kind of an overnight shift and same thing. It was really fascinating. 
then ended up landing a job at the Sleep and Performance Sleep and Performance Research Center at Washington State University as their sleep technologist. And it, it was kind of by chance the um, director of the sleep center what knew actually the person I was volunteering for brought in the director of that sleep disorder center. He was on the committee to bring, you know, find a person for this new sleep center. And so it just worked out perfectly for me. I started off as a sleep technologist. I worked at this sleep deprivation lab, also did some clinical work as well, um, doing some overnight studies at a sleep disorder center lab. And then kind of felt I was at a ceiling. I was really interested in the science and wanted to design the experiments myself. So I ended up getting my master's and PhD at the same lab um, and then did a postdoc at University of Calgary working with athletes specifically. Um, and yeah, and now I'm here today at Cerebra at a sleep technology company, really trying to change the way we help people with sleep problems. Yeah, so Amy, I mean, you've got an incredible background as well, too, in, in athletics, uh, your basketball, um, yeah, hell, you've run an Ironman for crying out loud. And now you're keeping up with your three kids. I bet you're running more every day now than what you've ever done before in your life. But, you know, do you think that that is maybe, you know, one of the reasons why you're as, you know, attracted to and interested in, 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 in helping athletes is because you, you see such a significant need, especially when athletes are are working on their, their razor's edge of their performance? Absolutely. I mean, for myself, I was a college basketball athlete and this was back in the early two thousands. Uh, you know, so we didn't know a lot about sleep and athletic performance at that time, but literally, you know, we would have experts come in for nutrition, hydration, um, strength and conditioning, et cetera. And never once did we ever talk about sleep. I think our coach would maybe say, make sure you get a good night's sleep, but that was kind of the end of the conversation. So there, there's a huge gap in what information is out there for athletes. I think it's getting better, but that was one of my motivating factors to work with athletes is because I know how important it is for performance. And especially when you're an athlete and you know, the difference between a gold medal and not even placing could be a matter of milliseconds. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that was motivating as well. And being an athlete myself, I wanted to kind of combine the passion of sports and sleep into one. And, um, yeah, that's where I'm at today. So if you think about, uh, you know, this whole idea of something like that's a cute statement, right. You know, get good sleep. I think we all say it, but no one knows what that means. Like, what would that mean? You know, I don't know. How would you define that? Um, and then thinking about this natural process uh, and getting us to understand that there's some steps that one should take. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the basics of sleep, you know, could architect it a little for us so we have a better understanding. Because sleep is, there's different stages of sleep. There's amount of time. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So if you wouldn't mind educating us, Lelaini, that'd be great. Sure. Um, I mean, the three key factors that I always talk about is quantity, quality, and timing of sleep. So it's not just about the duration. It's also about the quality that you're getting. I could tell someone to, you know, be in bed for 10 hours, but if they have an underlying sleep disorder, that's not going to help the situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, duration is important qu or quantity, uh, quality is important as well. And then the timing of sleep is important. So, um, for night shift workers, for example, it's very challenging because we are diurnal animals. We want to, you know, we want to sleep at night and be awake during the day. So, um, there's certain hormones being released that help with when you should be sleeping. So it's kind of those three factors. When we talk about the different stages of sleep, we have non-REM sleep and we have REM sleep. Um, so REM meaning rapid eye movement sleep. And that's kind of how this stage was discovered. They noticed people um, were moving their eyes during this state of sleep. 
And this is primarily occurring in the last half of the night, although we'll cycle into this every 90 to 110 minutes. Usually that first REM cycle is very short. And as the night goes on, it gets longer and longer. And that would be where you would wake up from a dream, you know, remember your dream, etc. Um, and then we have the non-REM sleep, which this is stages one, two, and three. So one is the lightest stage of sleep stage two, it takes up the most across the night. So that's about 50%. And then stage three is the deepest stage of sleep, which is occurring in the first half of the night primarily. And that's where growth hormone is being released. Tissues are being repaired. Um, even a lot of memory benefits come from that stage of sleep as well. And that's where if you were to try and wake someone up during stage three, that deepest stage of sleep would be really difficult to wake them up. So, um, yeah, and that's kind of, we cycle through the non-REM to the REM, as I mentioned about 90 to 110 minutes. And then, um, we do that about four times across the night. So we'll have uh, four different non-REM to REM sleep cycles across the night. Hmm. Yeah. So Amy, when I, um, went in to, to your lab to, to end up doing a, a, you know, a sleep study. I think I did two of them uh, overnight where, you know, we, we you know, basically I, I got hooked up to, I don't know, 30 or 40, you know, wires to my head and face. And, and I thought it was going to be incredibly uncomfortable, but it really wasn't. Um, you know, there were all these you know, electrodes all over me. What was, I found was super weird was knowing that there was a camera with somebody staring at me while I tried to sleep, <laughs> which was kind of weird, but you know, still I ended up falling asleep. Um, what doing a, a, an exam like that, what are some of the things that, that, that you most commonly notice when it comes to uh, patients coming in? that, you know, there is issues within body movement, breathing and respiratory, um, you know, what, what are some of the issues that you'd end up normally examining and, and finding out by doing a, a study like that? Yeah. Um, so number one, we would look at the stages of sleep. So we would want to know how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep is occurring during the night to kind of see, I didn't mention, um, the percentages, but typically about 5% is stage one, 50% is stage two, about 20% is stage three, and then about 25% is, uh, REM. And so that would be one of the things we would be looking at to see if, if they're falling within the normal range. Um, another thing we would be looking for is how many times the person wakes up per hour. And these are short, even three to four second awakenings where we see changes in the brainwave activity. Um, and so we'd want to know how often that's occurring per hour. That would be something we would be looking for. And then also breathing pauses during the night. If they're stopping breathing may have some snoring related to obstructive sleep apnea would be another one we're looking for. And also, um, limb movement. So there are people that kick their legs during the night a lot. So we'd want to know how, you know, what's going on with that. And yeah, those are kind of the basics to see what kind of uh, quality of sleep is this person getting. But uh, at my current company, we are working on leveraging the EEG, the brainwave activity more than just staging of sleep. So we're looking at sleep quality on a finer grain level. And instead of look, instead of scoring every 30 seconds of sleep based on these stages, we're actually automatically doing it, um, in three second bends and using a fast Fourier transform to decompose the brain waves that are going on during the night and hmm. really, really trying to use that information to gauge, um, the quality of sleep that the person is having. And there's a huge difference between like, if you take uh, patient a and patient B and they have similar, percentages of non-REM sleep and REM sleep, you know, they have a similar amount of deep sleep. They have a similar amount of REM sleep. Uh, when you look under the hood based on this new, it's called odds ratio product. Um, there could be vastly different, um, histograms, sleep quality between these two individuals. So I think, you know, 
home sleep apnea testing is becoming more popular where you're not looking at EEG activity. You're just seeing how many times is the person stopping breathing and they can do this at home. Um, I think if we want this polysomnography to continue and use this brainwave activity, we need to leverage that information. And one of the cool things that we have the ability to do these in-lab sleep studies at home. So we have that technology where Dave, you wouldn't have to come into the lab. You could just do it in, in your home, which is a lot better. You know, it's still there. You still have wires everywhere. So it's not exactly, you know, super comfortable, but at least it's in your own home environment. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. So there's, you know, there's this one sort of basic level that you could say, okay, should sleep a certain amount of time. Then there's the getting into, did I get through some of those stages? And then there's a a layer or a depth below that that actually says quality of sleep. So for those of us who don't know how to measure any of that, um, you know, is there some guidance one about, is there some good practice that we could in place, could put in place to get us to sleep better? Um, You know, are there whether they're techniques or ways of measuring how successful we were, other than our watches trying to tell us some of that, um, you know, how we feel. Uh, Maybe I'm going to throw too many questions at you, but then the last one is a little bit of, um, you know, can it matter? Like, can some people do better with less or more sleep? So, you know, basically trying to give us a little bit of, well, I'm not getting to a sleep doctor, but I'd like to know how to prove and how I know I'm improving or not. Yeah, I think, I think it starts with the minimum amount of sleep. So we want to be getting as an adult, we want to be getting between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. So I think it starts there. That's kind of the minimum. You want to hit that seven hour mark. Um, There are some people who can get by on less sleep, but when we look at the research, it's probably less than 1% of the population. There was one, um, There was one study recently where they're looking at a father son duo. One was getting four and a half. The other one was getting five and a half and their performance was great. They weren't tired during the day. They didn't have memory problems. And when they looked at how often that gene mutation occurred, it was literally one in 4 million people. (laughs) Unreal. So so they're cyborgs, basically they're cyborgs. Yeah. 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 So the chances are that it's you is very, very slim. So that's something to keep in mind. And also it's very challenging because there is almost a disconnect. So when we're sleep deprived, we lose some of that prefrontal activity. There's a deactivation of that prefrontal cortex is our, which is our decision-making our judgment, et cetera. And what we see in the research is that for those who were sleep deprived, they actually rate their performance as being fine. They're, they're like, oh, I'm doing great. But in reality, when we look at their performance, they're having lapses of attention all over the place. They have slower reaction time. So it is pretty challenging to kind of figure that out, especially if you are sleep deprived, you may be thinking you're doing great. Well, yeah, um, being is just, it's just exactly like if you're drinking. You know, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm performing great. I could drive well. I can talk to the ladies. And really, you can't. Uh, you know, when, when, when somebody's drunk at a bar, they're, they're not doing well, right? Absolutely. And yeah. there's actually been some research comparing um, sleep deprivation to alcohol consumption. And it's mm. something like around 17 hours of sleep deprivation is the equivalent to being legally drunk. So they looked at... Um, these people who are sleep deprived, they tested their reaction time and they compared that to the same group who were drinking. And yeah, it was, it was crazy to see that after, you know, let's say four in the morning or so 17 hours of being awake, they were similar to being legally drunk. So yeah, that was pretty interesting. Now, getting back to your question, Joe, um, it is challenging, but I think If you're waking up without an alarm clock, which a lot of people have a hard time doing, 
But um, I think that is a, a good sign that you are getting the right amount of sleep, the right quality, the, the perfect timing. Like if you're able to go to sleep when you're sleepy, wake up without an alarm clock, that's probably a pretty good sign that you're getting enough sleep and that the quality and the timing is good as well. That's good. Yeah. You know, I, <clears throat> I don't know this to be perfectly true, but you could tell me right or wrong that, you know, of the three sort of basic elements of survival, drinking fluids, water, eating food and sleep. You know, the trivia question always is, you know, if you didn't do them, which one would kill you first? You know, the lack of food, lack of water or the lack of sleep. And, you know, the, the trick question is that the lack of sleep will kill you first, you know, because it's so important that you can't make it more than what, five days without sleeping but you could go two weeks without eating easily, right? You could probably go two weeks without drinking anything and it wouldn't kill you. It'd be struggle, but sleep is that impactful in our lives. It's, it's really critical, right? I mean, this is, and you find that it's hard for people to get that through their head, Amy, that they don't really fully understand how important sleep is. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Um, you know, I, there's a quote, if, if, wow, what is it? Hold on. Let me sleep. Doesn't, um, hold on. I think this will be worth finding really quick. Oh yeah. You bet. Yeah. yeah another, another, another question, Amy is, is while you're looking that up, um, and maybe you can answer this after is, you know, I've, you know, my parents in the previous generation, they would always say, um, you know, I'm going to, you know, have a drink and that's going to help me go to sleep and sleep better. So, so maybe after that quote, when you, when you pop that up, you know, maybe answer that as well too, you know, does, does, does having a drink uh, before you go to bed, you know, beer or a glass of wine or a whiskey or something, because I always thought that impedes your sleep. It doesn't, you know, necessarily make you yeah, sleep better. Let's, it let's just puts you. So yeah, I want to jump into that too, because I think, I think that's a major question. A lot of people were like, oh, I'll have a drink and it will put me to sleep. And, and I, 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 I'm curious about that too. Okay. Do you want me to, so I'll answer this first question. And then do you want to ask that one next or? Oh yeah, you bet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a great quote that if sleep does not serve an absolute vital function, then is, then it is the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever made. And I think that's so true. We, wow. we spend so much of our time sleeping and yet we're still right. having this requirement during the day, which is right. huge. We haven't evolved to, you know, sleep one hour. So there's a lot going on, um, during the night. And even with daylight saving time, we'll see a 25% increase in heart attacks the Monday after right. we lose an hour of sleep. So there's, yeah, there's a lot oh. going on. And I think, I think we do need to educate people more on the importance mm. of sleep. I think it's getting better. There's a book by Matthew Walker called why we sleep. Um, so there's, there's people out there really trying to talk this message and I think it's getting better, but we still have a long ways to go. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, so let's talk about education for a second, because I, I just, you know, you know, my, my parents and my parents' generation, you know, they commonly would, would have a glass of wine or a bourbon or a beer, you know, to help put them to sleep. And I, what I read a while back, I'm super curious to hear this is that, I mean, does it necessarily put you to sleep and make you sleep better? Um, does it, does it, does it, does it hinder you, you know, the, the quality of sleep that you have? So, so what, what do you think about that? It, it helps you fall asleep quicker. That's for sure. But as the alcohol is being metabolized, it is definitely impairing your sleep. And so in the end, uh, when we look at with and without alcohol, uh, without alcohol, we see much better sleep quality, much more normal distribution of sleep stages. And, um, yeah, I think temperature plays a role as well. So alcohol kind of increases your body temperature and when we sleep our body temperature drops so that may be waking someone up during the middle of the night you know this temperature yeah. increase there's also increases in awakenings occurring even little awakenings during the night as the alcohol is being metabolized 
So my piece of advice would be if you can, um, drink with a meal. So drink with dinner, not with breakfast, <laughs> but, just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, not having that nightcap, but, but bringing it much more earlier in the day so that by the time you're sleeping, it would have been metabolized. Mm-hmm. So this one that has uh, been an intense curiosity of mine for a long time since I got into endurance sports. And I can sort of remember there's some days where, you know, you go like as hard as you possibly could. You train for an Ironman. You know, there are those days where you get seven or eight hours. And, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just literally soaked in sweat. And mm. you're like, why? Like, if you imagine you were wearing pajamas or something form of clothing you'd have to actually get up and change because you're just so wet from that and then other nights you sleep and you know it's, it's not the case you know I'm not changing my shirt every night that I go to sleep is there something that's happening that the body would heat up that much Amy during the night is it in is is it in reaction to some exogenous activity that is creating that to happen Yeah, that's a good question. Um, We're actually working with this company who's uh, measuring sweat throughout the night. Um, And we're going to compare that to the different stages of sleep and the different sleep quality metrics, et cetera, to see if there's a relationship there. Um, I do hear that a lot from athletes in that some you know, after some workouts, they will just be so hot during the middle of the night. I am not quite sure why that's occurring. Um, you know, having like, even, uh, there's a lot of interest in menopausal women, what they should be doing based on these night sweats that are occurring during the middle of the night. Um, and for them, we would recommend having a change of clothes right by the bedside, you know, in case you do wake up and you have to change, um, having a cool drink of cool glass of water right by your bed. And then there's, there's even, um, chili pads. There's these pads that you can put on your mattress that help regulate the temperature. So that's something to look into if someone is really struggling with this. Um, and then, you know, there may be a chance of having a sleep disorder as well. So if it's occurring very frequently, uh, there have been some relationships or associations with obstructive sleep apnea and night sweating. So that's something to kind of consider as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots, lots of things to consider. Um, so, so let's consider more, uh, because Amy, when you were working with me in, in 2018 with the run, uh, we were talking a lot about, um, you know, the temperature of the room um, and, and the importance of that. Also, you know, blocking out light um, and, and eliminating some of those kind of feedback systems. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing many here. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about what we can control um, that can really optimize our, our sleep. Yes, it's it's the sleep environment can make such a big difference. And for me, I, it actually took me a while to realize this. I went to uh, golden BC, British Columbia stayed at a cabin in this was in during winter time as well. So it was very dark. It was very quiet. It was very cool. And I slept so good there. And my whole family ended up like sleeping way better than they ever would anywhere, you know? So, um, it wasn't until that point that I realized, wow, sleep environment does play a role in how well you can sleep. And I think the cool thing about adjusting your sleep environment is that it pays dividends way, way, way from there on out, you know, all the nights from there on out, if you were to invest in, uh, blackout blinds, blackout curtains. So for me, current, currently I have a blackout shade that I pull down. And then I also have blackout curtains that cover that as well. So that I'm not getting any external light coming in, which even from your street lights, you know, if there, there is, being in the city, there are, there are light disturbances out there. So that's Mm -hmm. something people can invest in. They can wear an eye mask, um, keeping that environment like a cave. So cool, dark and quiet, like a comfortable cave. Uh, so having it dark, which we talked about keeping it cool, 
Um, typically between 16 and 19 Celsius is kind of that temperature, temperature range that's best for sleep and then, uh, quiet. So having earplugs, you know, there's actually some, I haven't tried this yet, but I'm, I'm really curious. I want to get some custom made earplugs that fit according to, you know, your particular ear, uh, physiology. Um, so yes. And, and I think again, it's a good way to create a good sleep environment from there on out that you don't necessarily have to do a bunch of behavior change. It's kind of automatic. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important. So we're, uh, we're getting the idea of, you know, there's this sort of optimal, way method um sleeping more would be there's two questions that one is you know okay i woke up but should i sleep is, is 12 hours better than eight you know is there a point where there's somewhat of a diminishing return and then maybe we could pop into the question of napping and sleeping uh during the day mm-hmm. not necessarily catch up because that's a, a we could also talk about whether there's such a thing but how does napping play a role in, uh, in sleep? But so if one is a lot more hours better than is 12 better than eight? No, no. I mean, in my previous research that I was doing with people with depression, we were finding that, um, actually the survey went out to everyone and we were looking at depression levels and we found that those who weren't getting those who had less sleep. So, six hours or less. And those who had more than nine hours of sleep actually had a higher risk for depression. So, uh, more isn't necessarily better. Um, I think it's taken us a while to get to this point in the sleep field, but I would say that more sleep isn't necessarily better. Um, when we're talking about kind of the general population, For athletes themselves, there was one study in Stanford basketball players where they told them to be in bed for 10 hours. And these are, you know, they should, you know, they're very, they have athletic commitments, they have school commitments, social commitments, et cetera. So they told them to be in bed for 10 hours and they ended up getting averaging about uh, just over eight and a half hours. And they found that their reaction time was quicker. Their sprint times were quicker. Their uh, free throw shooting, three point percentage improved. Their mood was better. Um, so yeah, it is, it is kind of a balance. Um, you know, in that particular study, they found that that amount of sleep was, was very, very good. And it wasn't, it wasn't the 10 hours by any means. Um, but in general, we do think athletes need more sleep. And so they may be a little bit beyond that nine hour cap where we say, normal adult between seven and and nine hours when it comes, when it comes to naps, um, I think naps can contribute to the overall 24 hour sleep that you're getting. So for example, I've worked with a lot of swimmers where they have to wake up early for pool times and they just can't get to bed early enough. It's just not possible for them because, you know, their melatonin isn't being released at the right time for them to go to bed at 8 PM to get up at 5 AM, for example. So in that case, we can supplement with a nap, a longer nap during the day to make up for some of that lost sleep at night. But even that aside, I would say for someone who's getting seven hours, seven and a half hours, a nap supplementing with a nap is going to be very beneficial at improving productivity, boosting mood, boosting alertness. So even if you are getting the proper amount of nighttime sleep, having a nap is just going to provide so many, so many benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Amy, let's talk a little bit more about napping because I remember, you know, a couple of years ago when, when we were having these discussions about naps and, and, and just talking about the cycles, and, you know, we were talking about, you know, if you're going to nap, nap for roughly this length, or if you're going to go over that, go over that to this length. 
type thing to, to work alongside of the, um, the, the, the cycles um, in, in, in sleep. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that because napping isn't just necessarily lying on the sofa and getting up when you, when you want. Should, should one be setting an alarm uh, for a specific time to get up in that day? Number one, I think, I think athletes should schedule naps like it's a part of their training. So have that nap scheduled, um, you know, and ideally at least three days a week, have a nap scheduled. Um, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to, I'm going to have a nap, um, regarding the timing. So there's generally, uh, 30 minutes or less. You're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep where you're going to wake up feeling groggy. So that's kind of the, the, um, the mad, the method behind that advice is, um, set it for a shorter amount of time, a power nap so that you don't get into that deepest stage of sleep. And it takes, you know, an hour to wear off. So, um, then if you do have a bigger opportunity around more of that 90 to 110 minute mark, where you will be getting into all the stages of sleep would be important in that case. And alarms are, are important for napping because, you know, if you're absolutely exhausted and you just, just lay in bed and nap for three hours, um, it's going to impact your ability to fall asleep at night. So having an alarm for me, I will, uh, you know, if I get a poor night's sleep, I'm going to plan a nap the next day automatically. And I'll set my alarm for about 30 minutes and do some breathing techniques, do some cognitive techniques to help me fall asleep for that nap. And usually I want to try and wake up before my alarm, because then you just wake up more refreshed. Mm -hmm. So the ideal situation would be to wake up before your alarm goes off. And then immediately you could um, get bright light, go outside, take a walk to kind of wake you up even more. Um, for those longer naps, so 90 to 110, same idea. You can set an alarm for 10 to 15 minutes beyond the length that you want to sleep, but then ideally you do want to try and wake up prior to that alarm. If you can mm -hmm. nice. yeah, see a lot that we can learn about this optimization and <clears throat> there is a, you know, the Dave and I would know, and you would as well, right. You know, we can go run intervals you know, we can do more miles, we can run tempo, we can swim harder and all of that. All of that's to help improve our performance. Um, it sounds like, and maybe we can touch on this a little bit, Amy, that better sleep actually helps improve our performance. What, what is it that's happening that, that's sort of facilitating that, you know, that, you know, getting this, you know, we know that there's companies now who are measuring sleep, you know, the watch companies and all the device companies, and they're giving us scores. And then it's also telling us how much recovery time we need in terms of sleep. Uh, is, there, is there something that, you know, we could say that that's actually truly now part of our training plan is to put the sleep measurement as important as the day-to-day the -day performance guidance that either we create or our coach would create for us. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, aura ring, there are, uh, wearables, whoop Fitbit, even, you know, Garmin yep. has a sleep tracker as well. Um, it is, you have to kind of question the validity of those devices. So for example, I have a Garmin forerunner and I use it for running for training, et cetera. But literally I take it off before I go to bed because I know that it is not accurate, especially the Garmin ones. Um, just when you look at comparing what they're saying versus if you were to wear electrodes with looking at brainwave activity and stages of sleep, there is a big difference in, in what those devices are producing. Um, but there are, there are good ones out there and I don't want to you know, like Aura and Fitbit, all of these are pretty similar. They, they do a decent job. And I think they can provide benefit because it can motivate people to get more sleep. You know, it looks like my readiness score is uh, 70 today. You know, maybe I should go to bed earlier. So I think there are, there are definitely some benefits to these devices. Um, but we're not, we're not there yet. Um, you know, so 
we're actually starting to develop a, an EEG device that you would wear, like a, just a mini EEG device to look at some of these deeper metrics other than stages of sleep, um, and pair that with a digital therapeutic to where we can really try and, um, really try and prescribe different sleep behaviors for people based on what we're seeing with the EEG. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think these devices can be useful. Uh, they can be harmful as well. Um, so for example, if Dave, you know, has a big race coming up and he uses that feedback from his watch where it said, Oh, I got a poor night sleep last night. Um, I think that could really impair someone's performance if they're looking at that feedback, believing in that feedback. Um, so it's can be a bad thing as well. And I'm working with an MBA team where they're, they're using these devices. And my advice to them is to turn off the feedback. So, um, yeah, I think we can use it to a certain extent, but if we're approaching like playoffs or something, probably want to turn off the feedback from those devices. Um, even just something simple as tracking your overall subjective sleep quality, like how well did you sleep last night? Um, mm -hmm. how many hours did you get? Even just a simple paper version, you know, or tracking that electronically as a coach, those would be kind of the two main things that I'd want to be looking at is sleep duration and then a subjective measure of sleep quality. No, and I agree, Amy. I, I think when it comes to receiving that, that, that feedback, you know, a lot of the time, you know, if you would pay close enough attention, you, you know how you feel, you know how you're performing and you know what didn't work and you know what did work. I mean, the best advice that you ever gave me was, and I'm, you know, I've been waiting this entire what, 45 minutes to ask this question because I think this is, this is gold for our, our audience. And, and maybe as well to even giving Joe, who's training for his first 24-hour um, race, some really great advice. You gave me some advice about banking sleep. And for a guy like me who runs, you know, 24 hour races and further, I mean, Joe's running his first 24 hour race, meaning he's going to be running consistently or walking at parts for 24 hours straight. So he wants to be as rested as he possibly can before his event coming up. Um, you know, people who are training for the Olympics or they're, 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 they're set to do one incredible thing one day. What could we do, be doing um, 10 days, seven days out to being really preparing ourselves ultimately for that, for that one day? Yes, banking sleep is huge. It's a great strategy. And I think it helps also with anxiety prior to the competition as well. So banking sleep is just trying to get more sleep leading into this important event. And you want to do that at least probably two weeks out. We have seen benefits even a week out. So um, but I would say starting with that two to three week mark, trying to go to bed earlier, maybe sleep in a little bit later, add in naps. If you increase your nap activity as well to try and make up, you know, get some more of that sleep across the week. And the research has shown that those people who get more sleep than they normally do leading into a sleep deprivation period perform better than those who just get the normal amount of sleep that they normally get. So, um, this is a great strategy for people, especially, you know, leading into a 24 hour event where you're not going to have time to sleep necessarily, um, getting a lot, banking that sleep, getting a lot of sleep leading into that is going to help you perform better. Um, and, and like I said, we find that the night prior to a competition, athletes don't sleep as well. So this is another strategy to, okay, you know, you're probably not going to sleep as well as you normally would leading into mm -hmm. this competition. So as long as I bank sleep and I've gotten good sleep leading into it, it's not going to impact you as much, um, that sleep deprivation that's going to occur or that poor night mm -hmm. sleep prior to the event. Absolutely. And I, I think it gives you great agency that, that you're doing something and, and, and kind of banking. I know we can, we can bank sodium. We can bank a lot of different you know, fuels in our body for that day. But I, just myself speaking, um, you know, when it comes to banking sleep, you, you know, a week you know, later or 10 days later, 
you actually feel like you're you go into a meeting and you're you're speaking well and clearly and and and, and you're thinking on the fly and your body's per- it's amazing just exactly how how incredible you feel um and then of course take joe doing his 24-hour race you know 20 hours in you're thinking oh my goodness i should be yawning right now and i'm not um yeah i i found it was it was just the the, the best tool when it came to fueling and eating and hydration and sleep i found it was the best tool that you could take into an, an ultra endurance activity yeah yeah and i i think it it lines perfectly with the tapering as well so you know you're tapering your training and why not add in some more sleep now that you have the time? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just for fun, you know, cause this is not the norm, right. To do a multi-day event, mm-hmm. um, but let's just talk about like what, you know, like I did the Tahoe 200 and I was out there for three and a half days. Um, first night I slept an hour, the second night I slept an hour, the third night I slept like two and a half hours. And, you know, you can start to feel it pick up and build up. Is there, like, if you're going to do in the day, one day might do, or you start a six-day event, is there some, like, minimal amount that you have to try and get that day? You know, like, uh, you can go 48 hours, but don't go longer than that. If you're going longer than that, make sure you sleep a few hours each day. Like, what would be your advice? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think there's been research on that to really define. It it depends on the person. It depends on the event. Um, But I would say that if you're going to sleep during the day and and Dave and I worked on this for his uh, race in the dome. um, I forget what the race is called, but yeah, six days in the dome. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. six days in the dome. Um, we strategize to where we would want to time his sleep. So the timing of this sleep is important. So let's say you figured out that you want to sleep three hours a day, um, you know, throughout this six day race, for example, what we strategized with Dave was that we wanted to time that sleep, um, as it related to his highest levels of melatonin. So at least, you know, I think it's personal, like you may, one person may do better by having a three hour chunk. Uh, Another person may do better by maybe doing an hour and a half or a two hour chunk with an hour during the day. But uh, for Dave, we made sure that at least one of his naps was occurring during that highest levels of melatonin, which is typically between three and 5am, you know, and that's, this, these levels of of melatonin are occurring regardless of your prior sleep wake activity. And so we wanted to time that sleep as it related to that highest levels, because during that time, if he was running, he would be at his lowest levels of alertness. He would have low energy. So I think that is a strategy that people can take in these long distance endurance events is to, at least if you are going to sleep to time that between that three and 5.00 AM, uh, Mark. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And, and Amy, Amy, not to, um, to put words in your mouth, but I think when you were answering Joe and you said, you know, there isn't enough good evidence. I think what you were trying to say was that there aren't enough idiots like Joe and I out there that are willing to do these six day races and, and run through at the middle of the night. So, so just to you know, be clear, you know, I, I mean, we, 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 we totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, absolutely. We have, uh, we've had the, you know, so we've been doing this almost a year now, Amy, and uh, we've had some really intriguing characters uh, and quite a few have done these backyard races, which is that every hour in the hour, you run this 4.167 miles and you get some amount of rest between the amount of time it took you to run your four miles and the top of the hour. That could be anywhere from maybe 20 minutes to a minute. And you go on and we've had this conversation with some of the best in the world, literally the best in the world, Courtney DeWalter, Johan Steen, and you can name a a whole host of others we've talked to. And there's this sort of question, like, because it's really an interesting study, right? Because the most you could really get would be 20 minutes. You, it'd be hard to run the four miles faster. Maybe you can get 22 minutes, let's call it, right? So that's the most you're going to get in any hour. And 
and these these crazies who I we've been talking to, uh, it's like, can you get to a hundred hours? You know, can this race format go on with those little bits of sleep every time? And and so I'll let you answer the question, but I'll say that Johan, I think Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, his strategy was to as often as possible, even to get to sleep, like even in hour four, don't wait till hour 24 and start the sleep mm-hmm. process then. Like at hour four, if you got 15, sleep for 10, you know, whatever you can get. And he he won uh, and has come uh, very far, like 68 hours, maybe Dave? 68 hours, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, extraordinary amount of time to, to and I think, you know, and some of the others like uh, Will, who we talked to, um, he fell asleep walking, you know, at the end, that was his last, he was just leaning against a tree sleeping, you know, so there's sometimes where the sleep just wins out. Anyway, you know, what do you think about it? Certainly this is pushing the body at levels that most shouldn't, uh, but you know, that's, that's okay. Um, it is somewhat supervised, we'll call it. Uh, any thoughts on that? Like how that's working, that those little bits of sleep at every interval could keep you going longer? Could we get to the hundred hours with that strategy? Yeah, that is, that is very interesting. I mean, when we look at napping, even short napping, um, we do see boost in alertness that lasts, you know, hours from that point. Um, so I'm wondering if it's related to just the brain activities kind of slowing down, resting while you're sleeping for that short amount of time. And then it's just kind of cumulative and then you're back at it and then you have another rest in brain activity. And typically what we see in, when we look at sleep deprivation in runners, let's say we see that it's not necessarily the sleep deprivation is impacting the muscle activity. It's more impacting the brain activity. And so our perception of effort is much higher when we're sleep deprived. So Good even point. if we can get a little nap, 10 minutes, um, and and you're accumulating that at every hour interval, I think it's all going to add up and it's, it's going to mm-hmm. lead to less kind of perception of effort with that brain wave rest that you're getting. Yeah. No, you know, and I agree, Amy, I think, you know, like Johan and I, I ended up running uh, Big's Backyard in 2019. And and I, I, I was going in with the approach that, you know, the, the speed is rewarded by getting more sleep. And you don't need a lot of sleep if you're running for 20 hours or 25 hours or 30 hours. But if you're going to go 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 hour, 100, you know, after a while, you think about all the things that are going to get you, the things that are going to you know, bring you to your needs, fueling, hydration strategies, it's going to be sleep. Uh, I think that's really, and so like what Johan said, I'm going to run a little bit quicker. I'm going to have the fitness to do so. So definitely not, you know, going out and blowing your brains out by going super fast. But then if you are getting, if, if you're, if you're at the aid station, so you're able to get 15 minutes uh, lying down with your eyes closed versus the other person who gets, who gets five over hour after hour after hour, that's going to add up. Would you agree that, you know, there's an accumulation of an extra two minutes sleep or an extra four minutes sleep? over 10 hours and 20 hours and 30 hours, that would really make a difference between an athlete's performance. I don't know if I can answer that. Yeah. I I think it's, (laughs) I think it's a good question. Um, Mm -hmm. and it would be interesting to look at sleep duration across in the hundred hour race and see Mm -hmm. like, is there a difference in performance between someone who's getting more, you know, even 10 minutes more per nap or five minutes more per nap, versus Mm -hmm. the other person. I think there's a lot of factors going on. Um, and, and it could be that, you know, some of these people who are doing well in these races may not need as much as, Mm -hmm. you know, the other person. So there could be a factor of sleep need as well, um, Mm -hmm. going into that. And I do want to mention, um, there was one study in, it was a rodent study where they found that a monotonous activity. So running on a treadmill actually led to slower brainwave activity as if they were sleeping. And it was specifically related to a monotonous activity. And, um, 
And yeah. And so they hypothesized that then these animals didn't need as much sleep because they were relieving some of that activity with this monotonous brainwaves that they were seeing during the running, uh-huh. running wheel. And, um, it was interesting for you, Dave, because I know you came into the lab and we looked at your deep sleep and you had just, I think you had run like 60 kilometers or it was, um, that type of training for you. And you came into the lab and we noticed that your deep sleep was a lot less than I would have expected. And I'm just curious. I mean, I don't think this research has been done in humans, but I'm wondering if like the monotonous activity of running for long distances that you could be kind of relieving some of that sleep need that you would normally get. That would be super interesting. And yeah, I, I, I think, you know, anecdotally, and Joe, maybe you could add in this as well too, when you're out there running, it's, it's a meditative, you would almost feel like you're, you're in this, this, you know, rhythmic meditative state that, that, that might replace bits of sleep. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I, you know, there's certainly times when, you know, you can disassociate, you know, some of the pain or just the sort of cognitive activity that's going on. You'd be like, oh, I just got four miles. I didn't even realize I had gone that. So I do think that there are, there is that disassociation that can happen. Uh, the question ultimately would be, you know, is there, so my opinion on that, the Johann Steen approach is that what you're doing is you're changing the slope of the curve, right? So when you're not resting, you're, the slope is going up and up and up till there's a point of blowing up. But if you get a little bit, the slope is just going slower. So it's gonna still get to the same place, just might take a little longer because you were repairing, but I don't think you can repair at the same pace because of the activity. But that little bit of rest, I think, uh, every once in a while there in that strategy uh, might well buffer back to the point we made before enough, um, you know, to give enough advantage, right? Back to the early point, Amy, which is, you know, it can get you seconds or feet a minute here. You know, um, I know we're spent a lot of time with you and we appreciate it. Um, I think we're going to have to get some more research and talk some more about sleep over time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you think about yourself and then the work you do in this area, you know, Dave and I are sort of captivated by this idea of chasing tomorrow. And, and by that, we sort of mean, you know, like we always know tomorrow can be better than today because we can make it so. And uh, what's your chasing tomorrow? What do you have on uh, the horizon for yourself and the clinic or just life in general? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about helping people sleep better and translate the science that we're seeing into actionable items. Mm. And so, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, people know that they need sleep. They know it's good for them, but when it comes down to it, it's just hard to change those behaviors. And so for me, I'm really interested in how do we change behavior as it relates to sleep habits Um, that's kind of an interest of mine because what good is the information if you don't act on it? Um, so that's an interest of mine. And then also just, yeah, there's so much we can do for people who are sleeping poorly at this point, but I think there's so much more we can do. You know, there's plenty of people that we see who go in to a sleep study, they get diagnosed with a sleep disorder. They try, you know, a CPAP machine, continuous positive airway pressure to keep their airway open. So they don't stop breathing during the night, Mm -hmm. but, um, it doesn't work out for them. They don't feel any better. Their sleep doesn't improve. And so I'm really interested in kind of phenotyping these people and, creating personalized treatment based on some of these factors that are going into this. So that's definitely, definitely an interest of mine that we want to pursue with, with our research is to be able to identify these specific individuals who will do better on this specific type of treatment. Nice. Well, we appreciate you being uh, dedicated to this really important topic. Mm-hmm. One that matters to all of us and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks very much for being on the podcast, Amy. Thanks for having me. 
thanks. Hey, Dave. Okay, well, it took us 48 episodes to get to maybe the most important topic we could touch on, sleep. You know what really struck me, though, about what Amy said? Beyond all the great advice, it was that over all of evolution, we've not changed our need to sleep. I mean, sleep is so important to our overall human system that we keep sleeping the same amount that we did for thousands of years. I guess that's what really keeps our systems running as best as could. It's sort of like an engine. You know, when it gets overheated, it needs time to cool down. We need sleep to do the same thing for us to get back to our core potential. Wow, is sleep ever important? Okay, well, there you have it. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout-out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You can find them on www.performancetea.com. And they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. We would greatly appreciate if you could follow us on Instagram and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. As always, a huge thanks to our listeners for coming on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks very much.